strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Karma Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're of course coming to you here through our 8 Ken FM here in the Red Centre in Ubuntu, Alice Springs and also online from our website at karma.com.au. Uh, it's Tuesday, the 16th of July, 2019. Great to have your company today. I'm Carl Dowling, your host for Strong Voices. And you'll have my company all the way up until uh, 12 o'clock today. Well, coming up on Strong Voices, uh, we're going to be hearing a bit from uh, last night's uh, ABC Q&A program, which discussions turn to Indigenous Voice to Parliament. So we're going to be hearing some of those discussions and hearing what some of the panellists on uh, last night's program had to say about that as we continue to see discussions right across the country uh, around uh, sort of the best way forward and, and of course, we had the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, where a lot of Aboriginal people and representatives from across the country came together. So, uh, obviously, those discussions still very important moving into the future. Also, we're going to be hearing about the uh, Barclay Work Camp, which is a low-security uh, correctional facility just outside of Tennant Creek. The Barclay Work Camp uh, held its annual open day at the weekend, showcasing uh, day-to-day operations and some of the work that takes place within the facility. Uh, Karma did do a outside broadcast at the weekend. We're going to be hearing uh, a bit about uh, the Open Day today on the program. Also, we're going to be heading down to uh, Redfern to hear about the first ever all-Aboriginal fire and rescue team as well on the program today. So don't miss that one. That's going to be near the tail end of the show. We're, of course, as well going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Great to have your company this morning. As you mentioned, we are going to be hearing from uh, some of the ABC's Q&A program this morning. Uh, on last night's program, discussions did go towards uh, Indigenous Voice to Parliament and the panellists... Uh, obviously shared their point of view on Indigenous Voice to Parliament, what would that mean to them and their thoughts on whether or not we should have an Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Uh, The panellists that were on the program last night included uh, Linda Burney, the first Aboriginal woman elected to the House of Representatives, who's also the Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services. 
uh, Rebecca Sharkey was also on as well, who's a member of uh, the Australian House of Reps, who's representing the Division of Mayo in South Australia. We're also going to hear from uh, Jim Moylan, who's a New South Wales senator representing the Liberal Party, as well as uh, Sammy uh, Shah, who's a stand-up comedian and radio presenter. We're also going to be hearing a, a bit from uh, Toby Ralph as well, who's involved in marketing and has uh, worked on... Uh, around uh, five federal elections in Australia as well. And we're, of course, going to be hearing uh, first up from the question from the audience and then hearing as well, of course, from uh, Tony Jones, who is the host of Q&A. Next question comes from Amanda Powell. Some people are saying that a constitutionally recognised Indigenous advisory body would be a third chamber of parliament. However, um, entrenching the power to establish a consultative and advisory body to parliament is certainly not a new idea. Um, and quite recently, in 2016, the Queensland Constitution Act entrenched the requirement to have parliamentary committees. Um, another example, New Zealand set up a parliamentary commissioner for the environment in 1986. And and New Zealand's had a parliamentary Maori Affairs Committee since the late 19th century. So these bodies only ever have recommendatory powers. However, they can provide a voice, leadership and empowerment. What are people so afraid of? And are the claims of a third chamber of parliament just dog whistling? OK, Linda, we'll start with you. Uh, I am so pleased you've asked that question. Um, I want to say once and for all and draw a line under it for the naysayers, a voice to the parliament is not, never has been perceived and it will not be a third chamber. It is a nonsense and it's mischievous to even describe it as that, as you've realised. Uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and I'm sure most people here uh, know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, talked about three things. It talked about a voice to the parliament enshrined in the constitution so no government could get rid of it. It talked about a Makarata Commission that would lead the process of treaty or agreement making, many of them already existing in Australia, like the Noongar Agreement in Western Australia and Perth. And the third thing it asked for was a national process of truth-telling for all of us in this nation to come to terms with our past and be comfortable with it. And I think that that would grow us up remarkably as a nation. Labor has said to the government, we will work closely with you. Uh, Rebecca and I have spoken about it. We will work closely together. There is a long way to go with this discussion. And I believe that having an Indigenous voice to the parliament would be beneficial to everyone, but most beneficial to issues like Hayden's race and others. That's the social justice outcomes for First Nations people, which are frankly um, atrocious. Ken Wyatt seems to be moving towards a legislated model, not a model built into the Constitution. Is that a compromise uh, that you might be prepared to make? I know that the voice... Um, as part of the Uluru Statement is meant to be in the Constitution, but the pressure will be for it to be outside the Constitution. That's coming from Peter Dutton, among others. The Prime Minister seems to agree. Um, if this is too hard, a, uh, a rock to push uphill, will you compromise and have it outside the Constitution? Oh, well, th three things, Tony. Um, at the moment, I am not talking about, and the Labor Party is not talking about, compromise. But we are talking about working as collaboratively as possible with the government. Um, and 
who knows where we'll end up in a few, uh, in a year or two's time. <clears throat> the most important thing is to hear from the voice of First Nations people. And I know uh, very much from my own discussions and consultations that people want a voice to the parliament that has surety. We are still very burnt by the experience of ATSIC, which was gotten rid of by, um, I think it was John Howard and Amanda Vanstone was the minister. So what First Nations people, everyone, are looking for is a voice that cannot be at the whim of a government, which is why the Constitution is seen as an instrument for making that voice permanent. Um, We will have the discussions, uh, work through the issues, and I can assure you... Uh, that this is not a scary prospect. This is something that is well overdue and could well change some of those issues that we've been facing as a nation for so long, like homelessness, like uh, domestic violence, like incarceration, child removal and shocking, shocking um, life expectancy outcomes. Okay, let's throw this around the table. Toby, what do you think? I think this is an evolving conversation. I think it's a very important one for Australia. In my work, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of people who run big things, corporations, even countries, uh, industries and so on. And some are good leaders, some are bad. What, what I notice is a characteristic of a good leader is not that they have brilliant strategy or they're forceful or they're economical or their tactics are wonderful. A great leader has the capacity to carry people mm. with them and take one step get as many people as possible to take one step in the same direction. That's a very hard thing to do in this circumstance. Is that, uh, are you looking for that from I'm, the Prime Minister? No, I'm looking for that from Ken Wyatt, and I think he's doing a superb job of it. Mm-hmm. I think if he put a specific recommendation, it could get shot down now. I think it's unsurprising that in raising what's done, some people some people have very high expectations of, of the great news that might come from it, and others are scared of it. I think that's all just part of a conversation that will evolve, and I congratulate Ken Wyatt for what he's doing. Uh, Jim, um, can I just take you to a point here? The um, Republican referendum sort of founded uh, when people wanted to vote for a president. Now, some people said even if the president had no specific powers, he'd have a symbolic power over Parliament and the Conservatives did not want to see a body with a symbolic power. It seems the same argument is being played out around the voice. Uh, I think if it becomes a symbolic activity, you'd have to ask yourself why you would do it. Uh, I'm not scared of the issue, uh, but but I, uh, as a principle, I uh, would be very unwilling to place this in the Constitution. And as a, as a Liberal Conservative, uh, I think that the, 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 the challenges that Linda has just explained to us, uh, that the Indigenous population, the Indigenous uh, 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 group in this country face, I can't see how they are related to the Constitution. And if we, if we take all those individual things that, uh, that Linda was talking about and hope to solve them by doing something in the Constitution, I think we're moving away from the main activities, which is to assist our Indigenous people to uh, bring themselves up to where they want to be. What would be the problem of putting an advisory body 
into the Constitution if it didn't have the power to impact legislation but only to advise on it? Well, why put it into the Constitution? Uh, I mean, uh, so, Linda, well, Linda, 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 Linda just, just made the argument so it can't be at the whim of a government. Well, yeah, off. but there were other reasons why ATSIC went down. Let's face it, let's be truthful about it. It wasn't just John Howard trying to do something wrong. There are many other reasons why ATSIC went down. But I just, uh, I find it very, very interesting that having taken racial references out of the Constitution, we're now going to put them back in. And if we are... But if, they're if our, in there now. Uh, well, why do you want to put them in there? They're already in there. Well, why do you want to put more in? Well, the question is, you're not going to solve homelessness. You're not going to solve uh, all those problems you went through by having something in the Constitution. And I, you know, I, I visited the Northern Territory recently on a stillbirthing call with Mullandiri McCarthy. Uh, she's a superb spokesperson for her people. A superb spokesperson. You're a superb spokesperson for your people. Why is that, uh, uh, the Chinese community, the, the, the uh, uh, more recent migrant community, they, they, why don't they have a, a, a body which advises the parliament? We all have our members of parliament. I'm, I was a senator. Okay. He wasn't seated, mate. I was a senator. So we'll, we'll just get a microphone over to you so you can actually make that point and the audience can hear it. Okay, sorry. You Levi. In the second row. Levi. <laughs> Thank you. So you, I, I didn't hear what you said because... Yeah, so let's be really clear. Since 1778, sovereignty hasn't been ceded by any of the First Nations of this country. And the only way that sovereignty has been pushed aside is through force and violence. Thank you. We'll take that as a comment. Rebecca, um, going back to the question of the voice. So I think that as a nation we have a huge opportunity here and uh, I think if, if anyone was to lead this on the government side, I think Ken White will do this. I have um, tremendous respect for Ken. Uh, it needs to have the whole of the parliament uh, behind uh, uh, this, this decision and, and I think, um, Jim, it's about recognition and, and it's, it, we need to ensure that in our constitution we recognise that this land um, has been the land of Aboriginal people for 60,000 years. Put it in the preamble. Well, can I, can I ask, would you, would you be happy to take out uh, uh, the religious protection out of the constitution? No. No. Well, <laughs> there you go. Look, mm. um, look I think that um, it's a journey... Uh, and I think that what will be really important is that we get this right, because I think that uh, the Parliament, uh, I think that history, uh, European history, has let down Aboriginal people, and we can't, we can't let down Aboriginal people and this Tony, time. Yes, and it needs to be yeah. um, us not the Parliament not doing things to Aboriginal people. It needs to be all of us together, walking side by side. I, I'm. I'm excited about this. I think um, I think uh, Ken Ken White is a is a tremendous member of Parliament, uh, and I think that he will he will take this forward. I will say one thing though: when Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister, towards the end of his time, I actually uh, stood and, and asked a question. The crossbenchers get one question a day. Uh, we actually now get a second one at the very very end, but you never know <laughs> if you're going to get to that. Um, and I asked him: there are four flags that fly uh, in the. House of Representatives chamber and all four of those flags are the Australian flag. Uh, and there is an Aboriginal man in my community, um, shout out to Headley, and he said, I don't feel that I am recognised uh, in the chamber. 
I would like to think that we could, um, at the beginning of, of this parliament, we're very new in the parliament, uh, to have um, both the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander and the Australian flag all fly proudly in our chamber. OK, we've got another question on this, and it's from a different perspective. Uh, it's from Bill Thompson. Bill. After working and paying taxes for about 50 years myself, I believe that no person living in Australia today should be entitled to any special benefit or recognition which is based not simply on need or achievement but rather on race or how long their ancestors were here. What do the panel think about that? Um, we'll start with uh, Sammy because we haven't heard from you on this issue. Um, wow. Uh, thanks for the easy one. Um, it's, it, look, it's easy to dismiss the value of race um, when it's not something that has been a defining aspect of your life, when it's not something that has been used to vilify, deprive, um, and, and rather, in many cases, destroy entire communities. Uh, in, in, in situations like that, when, we, when you don't have that experience, when you've never had that um, that that kind of verification coming at you based entirely on your race, it's easy to sit and say, look, you know what, it's a fair go, everyone's born equal, everyone dies equal, and, and I don't see race. Um, it's actually harder to see race in these situations because that acknowledges a certain level of privilege. I can understand why you'd feel that, look, um, you know what, there's no race, everyone's equal, I don't, why should my taxpayer money go in different areas? Uh, but unfortunately for you, we do live in a society which is entirely designed upon helping one another, helping the underprivileged. We have New Start, which we desperately need to increase for a reason. We have Centrelink, we have all of these things. We have you know, Medicare, we have a system designed to help those who need the help. And there is, whether you like that truth or not, a community within Australia who, because of their race, have suffered more and greater than any other community in this country. And to give them the help because their race has put them in a situation where they've needed the help, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Bill, if you want to come back, that's fine. Linda. Um, I'm rather surprised by your comment, Bill, and I, um, I'm a little saddened by it, actually. Uh, I've paid my taxes for 50 years too, um, 45 years, I should say. Uh, I think that where you're coming from uh, is not actually understanding the truth of this nation. Um, and the truth is uh, that First Nations people um, have a special relationship with the land um, and have a very spiritual uh, relationship with country that has gone back tens of thousands of generations. And that means something. Uh, the second point that I'd make is that um, if you think that uh, bigotry and racism has not been part of the Australian story... Um, as Sami has indicated, then you're wrong, <coughs> because it has. And the thing that I see daily are the terrible outcomes of that bigotry and that racism and that history. I see it in young people, young Aboriginal people in particular. Uh, and it is uh, also, I think, a really important point to make, and I'll finish on this, Tony, is that the truth uh, liberates and for us as a nation to come together as Australians, all of us, to understand our shared history, our shared, um, our shared story, can only make us a better place. 
Just a, just a quick one, Linda. Anyway, we know what happens with referendums. So few of them get passed in this That's country. True. And uh, the leadership uh, to take you there needs to be bipartisan. It needs to be consistent. And yes. it needs to make a clear point to the electorate, which is led from the top. Do you think you're going to see that happen uh, under this government? I desperately hope so. Uh, we um, in the Labor Party have completely embraced the statement from Uluru, the statement from the heart, uh, completely embraced it and have done so, done so for some time. I think uh, you've heard our leader, Anthony Albanese, say that. Here's, here's the problem, though. Ken Wyatt, um, who could be the leader on the government side of this debate, has not embraced the whole thing but only part of it. Yeah, well, um, and he's now separating out the voice from the Constitution, it seems to yes, be. Yes, and I think the position of the Prime Minister is fairly clear. Uh, that he would like to see recognition of First Peoples in the Constitution, um, not the preamble, um, but the Constitution, and would like to see a voice legislated. Um, that is where the position of the government is at the moment. The position of the Labor Party is a full embrace of Uluru. But we also are very understanding that for a successful referendum in Australia, it must be bipartisan, it must be across the parliament, I would say, to Rebecca. Now, that is the, uh, that is the, the situation there is. There is a long way to go with this discussion and I'm not going to preempt anything at this stage except to say this, that at the end of the day, there has to be a permanent voice to the parliament that advises the parliament on issues pertaining to First Nations people, be it legislation or policy. And that can only make the outcomes better. Um, my wish is that it be enshrined within the constitution. The government has a different position and we will see where we get to. Um, and I, I hope that Scott Morrison can come to this discussion with an open heart and an open mind. That was Linda Burney, who was one of the panellists on uh, last night's uh, ABC's uh, Q&A program, where they were discussing uh, an Indigenous voice to Parliament. We're going to be hearing very soon about the uh, Barclay Work Camp, which had their open day uh, at the weekend, which uh, Karma broadcasted from. We're going to be hearing about that very soon. But before then, we are going to go to a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Hi, my name's Darren Pedersen, and you're listening to Karma Radio, Strong Voices on 18... FM. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, over the weekend, the Karma Crew uh, broadcasted out at the uh, Barclay Work Camp in Tanner Creek for their annual Open Day. There was uh, things such as music from the Barclay Drifters as well as many different uh, guest speakers as well as family and friends visiting for that day. Uh, Discussing the day, Karma's uh, Pam Riley spoke with Rob Steer, the Director of Custodial Operations uh, from the NT Correctional Services, as well as uh, the member for Barclay, Jerry McCarthy, who's the Northern Territory uh, Minister for Housing. 
here in the van, I have Rob Steer, and Rob is the Director of Custodial Operations, NT Correctional Services. Good afternoon to you, Rob. Good afternoon. And we also have a very well-known to Karma, the Honourable Jerry McCarthy, a member for Barclay. Welcome back to Karma again, Jerry. Thank you, and it's great to have Karma in Tennant Creek and the Barclay. Well done, guys. What a day. It's been an awesome, awesome morning, hasn't it? This is an annual open day, yeah, for uh, corrections and the Barclay Work Camp, but don't forget what has been happening this weekend, particularly in relation to the work camp. Mm. These guys have been flat out for weeks. It's about rodeo, it's about show, it's about the Barclay AFL, and then they invite the community out here to host them on their own uh, turf at the work camp. So, yeah, Rob, fantastic work. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't know about all the other stuff, Rob. So, um, yeah, it's been a great week lead up to this. Yeah, we're, we've got to uh, enjoy a fantastic relationship with the uh, Tennant Creek and Greater Barclay area, and we see ourselves as being part of the community and I think we've got to, got to acknowledge that um, prisoners in the community prior to coming to the work camp, they're still community members whilst they're in the work camp mm-hmm. and then when they re- release they go back to community and focus on community uh, reparations uh, where it's at. I was looking at your title, Director of Custodial Operations. For people that don't know what that means, can you um, tell us about your role? I know that you're leaving in August. Yeah, um, so the, the role uh, I've been in a very fortunate position. I've been up here for eight years and I've thoroughly enjoyed working in the Territory. My role looks over uh, Darwin Correctional Centre, Alice Springs Correctional Centre, the uh, Barclay Work Camp and also uh, our Datchelor Work Camp out at uh, East Arnhem Land and, al- and also um, the Sentence to a Job Program, uh, Correctional Industry Programs, Official Visitor Program and the lower courts in, uh, provide we provide security in the lower courts in Darwin. Very broad role, it's got about 1,700 prisoners in custody at the moment, majority of them are, are, are male. We've got from an incarceration uh, rate, we've got about 900 per 100,000 and the rest of Australia is back at about 189 per 100,000. So the work we're doing is actually trying to skill the men and women up there so that they don't come into custody. Well, the stats are really challenging, yeah. but it's a real credit to you know to correctional services in the Territory and uh, and the government's focus yeah. on how we can skill people up, how we can divert people, mm-hmm. how we can keep people out of the traditional system of, of corrections and, as Rob talks about, that custodial stream. And the Barclay Work Camp has been one of those really pioneering initiatives, as Rob talks about, that mm-hmm. Connection with community. It's a long haul, but that's where we're headed in the Territory and the government now is focused on a new policy around the Aboriginal justice principles. And Rob's very keen on this and uh, and I said, even though he's going to take a, a spell back into state, keep an eye on the Territory because mm. we will see some of these models emerge and Diliakwa and Groot have already signed an agreement with mm-hmm. the Chief Minister. Lajamanu mm-hmm. have had amazing work in, in the traditional mm-hmm. justice principles over many years. The West Coast and there are other areas that have, uh, are ready to start developing those systems where the low-level offending, that, that mm. really frustrating end of, of corrections, will be dealt with in community on country. It won't be this traditional pathway to a traditional prison environment. Yeah. So there's some really good things happening in the correctional space. And how many years have you been up here now, Rob? Uh, eight years. Eight, 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 eight years. years. Yeah, you've been really yeah. influential in guiding yeah. policy around this way. And it's going to be a, a really good outcome for Aboriginal people because, as Rob said, at the moment, per head of population, we're only a small population, we have way too many people going Absolutely. into prison. Absolutely. And uh, we really need to change those stats, don't we? It's a big day for uh, for the guys that are in this facility at the Barclay Work Camp. How much of a day does this impact on, on them as as an individual? It's important to still have those
strong cultural background and, and be able to have family come in, whereas if you're in a, in a jail, a stricter, you're not able to do that sort of stuff, are you? No, it's just I'm absolutely um, stoked when I see uh, partners and the kids and coming in and yeah. getting to see their uh, their loved ones and their partners and their husbands. It's just it's a great atmosphere to see it. It's sad in yeah. one way that it has to happen in here, but in another way, it's just it really makes the job worthwhile. And, and the other day, I was talking to um, the minister earlier on. One of the proud things for me is you go to the show yesterday, and I've got all the fellows who set the stand up there, and they're on the stand, and they're all part of it, and they got a smile on their face, and they're proud of being <laughs> proud of being part of something. And yeah. it's great to be around. And that for me was what that's the big difference for me uh, up here in the territory is is the um, Aboriginal prisoners a bit uh, in the Northern Territory are a, a lot different than prisoners in other parts of Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, I think yeah, we t- we've got obviously issues around alcohol consumption and yeah. the, the results of that. But for me, off alcohol, very these guys very and, and women are smiles on their face, yeah. proud, respectful. Yeah, that's what Re- I'm seeing yeah. here. Very proud, proud men, you know, even though they're, they're in a facility like this. Those routines are part of correctional services. I've seen this, I've seen the musters. But you know where the pride comes from? These guys spend very little time here. Yeah. They're mainly in town and yeah. in the community. They're also across the Barclay supporting community events, mm-hmm. Daily Waters, Brunette Downs. Mm-hmm. Newcastle Waters are doing this amazing work on restoring heritage buildings. Yeah. Like, we're trying to build the tourism industry in the Barclay, you know. So these guys are on push bikes riding into town to go to jobs. These guys are working in the community. So there is a great pride, not only for the people here and for the staff, the officers, and it's the townspeople as well. And Tennant Creek realises that this facility injects millions of dollars worth of work into yeah. our town, our community and our region every year, you yeah. know. That's the real pride factor. Yeah. And we're a good mob in Tennant and we're a good mob in the Barclay and we get on well together. Yeah. And this facility, this this concept was trialled here and has shown that it, it can work. And Rob, in his opening address, I was so pleased to hear, he said, you know, in the Northern Territory, we need to roll out 10 more of these. Yeah. I th- that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, it inspired me. Yeah. And I said, yeah, boss, you're exactly right. Yeah, I think so too. Why isn't there facilities like this for women? Excellent question. Excellent the question. women will go into the, the jail system, won't they? Yeah, one of the challenges we face in the territories is the size of our population, whether you have multiple facilities. And, you know, there's a budget, obviously there's a budget aspect to that. We're working pretty hard at the moment in terms of looking at alternative to custody options and bringing, taking the um, the females out of, the currently in the females are in the male facilities in, in a separate area. So we're looking at alternative to custody options for them. One of the great initiatives that we've been working with is with the um, YWCA. So they've been doing quite a bit of work on the Women of Worth program mm-hmm. up in Darwin. So they're effectively providing uh, case management uh, whilst in jail, but then also as the ladies transition out. And for me, we've had some absolutely tremendous results. Normally in the territory, we've got about, about 60% of the prisoners return to jail within two years. The Women of Worth project program, I think we've dropped that back to about 30%. So, you know, it's had a significant mm. impact in terms of... So we're looking at looking at alternatives for females at the moment. It's good to hear from the experts. And, you know, yeah. Rob's had a career in correctional services and it's logical. One of the things as a previous Minister of Corrections that I saw was we've seen escalating numbers of women entering custodial stream, which is really alarming. So it makes sense that now let's look at alternatives mm. for the women in our community as well. And, and if that means in corrections, then let's start to, to designs and stuff. It's good to hear Rob talk but about see, a program running. Jerry, they don't deserve to be in the jail system. Mm. 
I mean, like, you know, these women might their unpaid fines or, you know, like little petty things. They're in the correction, they're in the jail yeah. system. It- what the government's doing with what Michael Gunner's Labor government's doing around the Aboriginal justice principles, I yeah. think our women will feature in that. Yeah. And that is about keeping people in community. And it's about showing responsibility. There is consequences for your behaviour, but if it's welded into that community context, then the women involved, the men involved, will be still at home, part of the family structure, part of the community structure. But yet everybody will know you have this responsibility to work through before you're you're signed off for whatever offences that you you were involved in. So it's, it's definitely the way to go. It will be equal opportunity. It will apply to men and women. And it's interesting. I learned a lot from these guys. I yeah. really enjoyed my time in, yeah. in corrections, the learnings, and, and of course, all the new work that they were delivering. It's really important to understand it's a very complex system. It's a very challenging system. And I take my hat off to the to the prison officers and, mm. and all the staff, the support staff who choose it, because it's more than a job. It's like a vocation. Mm. It's, it's really putting yourself out there to help people who need that extra bit of help and to you know yeah. get that support to fulfil their their real life potential. That's what they get, don't they, Rob? In these facilities, that, look, we can hear in the background the chainsaw. Like yeah. you know, they're having a chainsaw competition. I think it is or demonstration. You know, with skills like that, you know, there's so much skills you can you can acquire in in, in a facility like this. Full industrial workshop yeah. down here. What about the the support programs? Kitchen, laundry. The, the staff here have done a fantastic job mm-hmm. over the last six months. So they're, they're delivering driver education programs. Mm-hmm. And delivering work health and safety programs. So the staff are actually facilitating that and the um, prisoners absolutely love it. The critical thing for me is staff-prisoner relationships. If you can have a respectful relationship, you can make an impact in yes. somebody's life. As somebody said to me a long, long time ago, and prisoners rely on staff for their success and staff rely on prisoners for their success. Yes. And I think it's really, really fundamental about what we're trying to do. And it's about re- respectful relationships. The Territory was the only jurisdiction in the last report on government services where we got a um, 5.3% reduction in reoffending rates. Every other jurisdiction around Australia had actually gone up by over 9%. So we're doing something right right in the Territory in terms of our approach to um, you know predominantly Aboriginal uh, incarceration. So mm. something's working. We've just got to do more. We've got to do, do, more. do more of it. We've got another great initiative down in um, down at Alice Springs where we established a uh, multimedia unit so the, the, the men learn uh, and women on uh, technology and they mm-hmm. create stories and for me it's when you hear some of these, these personal stories they don't want to be in jail no. they don't want to be in jail no. and it's you know, it, I think it's people sometimes suggest that they want to come to jail they don't when you actually l- listen to their stories and they don't want to be in jail and for me there's another there's another opportunity there because um, the uptake and knowledge around technology is really good mm-hmm. and we um, I, I think there's an opportunity there for us to bridge to bridge it and these stories we do with uh, local Alice Springs business I talk studios. It's about for me about bridging a forty thousand year old culture with a twenty first century, yeah. and there's a there's a bridge there for us to be able to facilitate yeah. that. That was uh, Karma's Pam Riley there speaking with Rob Steer, the director of custodial operations from the uh, Anti Correctional Services, as well as the uh, member for Barclay, Jerry MacArthur. There, they were discussing the Barclay Work Camp uh, annual Open Day, which happened at the weekend. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari, and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Very happy to welcome into the uh, Karma Studio for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from the, across the country. Karma's uh, Lorena Walker and Damien Williams. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. 
Well, Damo, we'll start with you. Uh, I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, remote uh, communities, community members from remote communities actually moving out and going into towns. Yeah, there's a report from the Australian that says that uh, so far uh, 37 Aboriginal families have opted to leave remote communities and town-based reserves for housing in northern towns, the northern towns of uh, um, Kununurra, Derby, Broome and Carnarvon as well. Another 24 families uh, will soon move to Broome in the second phase of a program called Move to Town. And and um, um, uh, the Move to Town has found that children who have made the move into town with their parents have, have a higher school attendance rate um, than before. And about... Um, 3,000 Aboriginal people live in 37 town-based reserves in Western Australia, and I believe that's uh, like um, town camps um, within those areas as well. A further um, 12,000 Aboriginal people live in Western Australia's remote communities, and there are 274 such communities um but many comprise of only a few dwellings and are empty for uh, much of the year. And, um, yeah, there's uh, been... It's just a bit scary seeing, uh, you know, some of the communities having... To people having to leave their um, traditional homelands to move into um, bigger towns just in um, terms of schooling and stuff like that and, and for other reasons as well. So it's pretty um, scary to see that starting to happen. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think as much as, you know, mob will want to remain as much as they can on country and, and should, you know, as, as much as we can support them to be able to have those basic rights, you know, like uh, water and things like that, uh, you know, to have clean water, to have things like, you know, schooling and things like the basic needs that, that people need to have. Mm. And I mean, like some of those people that are moving into those town camp-like places in those, um, in those uh, bigger towns, uh, some of them are still pretty run down as well. So it's pretty hard to try and um, yeah, mm. see where they're going to live properly. And quickly on to you, Lorena. I understand you've got a story this morning in regards to the uh, Darwin Art Fair. Oh, yeah. Um, just quickly, um, as we head into, well, it's July, but August is sort of a big uh, month for Darwin. Everything's sort of happening up in the top end. But this is um, really looking at the, the sale of Aboriginal art um, at the um, Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair, which is one of the most amazing places. If you are looking to buy Aboriginal art, you it's... It's definitely a place where you would go to look at. But this year um, marks the 13th year and um, it really is like the, it says the epicentre for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, culture, art, fashion, food and music. Um, yeah, it's a huge gathering of people from all over the country, Aboriginal people who um, want to showcase their art. And I don't know, Damo, if you remember last year when we were in Darwin, yeah. uh, at the airport, we were stuck at the airport and we had to help all these artists put all their artwork in the back of the <laughs> taxi bus. Yeah, it's amazing. To, yeah, to, to um, take it to the art fair. But yeah, it really is just a, an awesome showcase of what art um, and like they said, music. We went to the music one, but yeah, it's really a, an awesome event. So that's going to be happening in August uh, in Darwin very soon. Definitely very exciting for people to keep, I think, on their calendar. On that note, uh, Lorena, Damo, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the thank country. You. Thank you. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo!
<laughs> yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our final story now. Uh, Redfern has uh, long been known as a place where a lot of First Nations movements have started and now has become the uh, home of the first ever all-Aboriginal fire and rescue crew in the country. Uh, the three-person squad uh, made up of uh, Lance Ty. Uh, Stephen uh, Dingle and Mason Sims, who all came through the Indigenous Fire and Rescue Employment Strategy program in uh, New South Wales that aims to get more First Nations peoples into fire and rescue. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with uh, Lance, and, who is part of the All Aboriginal Platoon, and asked how it all came about. The crew came about, first off, uh, we all came through the IFES program, the Indigenous Fire and Rescue program with Fire and Rescue New South Wales. And our station officer, Patrick Albany, he was one of the was one of the main factors of getting us all there at Redfern Fire Station. Uh, he realised that as a predominantly Aboriginal community, Redfern could use a full Indigenous crew. And he went over and talked to Fire and Rescue. So he talked to our inspector, superintendent, and they were all for it. They realised that. You know, for Redfern to actually move forward with fire and rescue and to actually to break down any barriers or there may be in and around fire and rescue that, you know, a full Indigenous crew would be one of the ways to go. So Patrick Albany got myself, Stephen Dingles, who's an Aboriginal man from Mount Druitt, and Nathan Sims is uh, in and around uh, the LARP area. He's the son of the great South Sydney player, Rick Sims. So that's our crew. With the community around, what kind of... Um change have you seen with the response to fire uh, the New South Wales Fire and Rescue? Oh, you just see the change in the community and the kids and even some of the adults and you know, the old aunties and uncles. They'll pop in, say hello to the kids who come in and have a look at the truck and just want to have a chat to you and pull you up in the street when you're walking uh, to get a coffee or anything like that. They just sort of gravitate towards you because they know that there's a, there's a courier fellow on the back of the truck and they can sit down and have a chat. And if there's anything that's you know going wrong at home, if nobody has a you know a working smoke alarm, they can have a chat to us. And that's some of the things that we've been talking as, talking to them about as well. Yeah, and sort of getting that uh, what do you call it education around f- yeah. Uh, yeah, and the education around fire uh, safety. Oh, definitely, definitely. The the education around fire, fire with fire and rescue and in around safety is it's gone to another level in Redfern at the moment with this full Indigenous crew, and we've got other Indigenous firefighters on different platoons as well. But for to have a full first ever full crew of uh, firefighters, Indigenous firefighters, it's, it's massive, and yeah, you know, Redfern's really gravitating towards it, and you know we're getting out as much as we can into the communities and and doing whatever we can with the community. So, Lance, why firefighting? I always wanted to be a firefighter. Just um, never really thought I could be one because I've never seen any any black fellas on the back of a truck, back of a fire truck. <laughs> yeah. um, and growing up in a little country town out in Moree, it was non-indigenous people that you'd always see on a fire truck if they came up to the school, you know, and they're doing some fire education and all that sort of stuff. I never really seen, you know, a, an indigenous firefighter. Uh, the only time I did see an Indigenous firefighter was when my cousin, he's my late cousin now, George Chaffield, he was a retained firefighter. So that's just a, uh, a fire, an on-call firefighter in, you know, small communities. And he was one of my role models and he showed me that, you know, we could have firefighters, Aboriginal firefighters on the back of the truck. And, you know, it's taken me a few years, but finally got the job that I wanted to get. Yeah, and I bet it would have been a hard road, eh? It was, it was. You do a six-month course with PACE. Taking South Wales down here in uh, personal training, so PT in fitness, 
it goes for six months, like I said, but you're also getting a hands-on experience with fire and rescue, so they take you to a fire station, give you a hands-on feel about rescue, and, you know, you get to put all the uniform on and do some search and rescue and some breathing apparatus so you can understand that, you know, this is what it actually is to be a firefighter, what sort of work you have to put in. And everybody that came through our course really loved the program and we're always helping and giving back to that program because it's given us a, um, a job within fire and rescue. So when did you and the other lads um, graduate and become firefighters? Well, I graduated in 2017 with fire and rescue. Nathan Sims as well, he graduated in 2017 and Stephen Dingle graduated uh, in 2019 this year. So there's a bit of a break in between when you finish the course and when you actually progress into a full-time position. It just depends on where you are in the recruitment list. So it's a bit of a process, but it's a rewarding process as well. And like you said, there's a handful of um, other Aboriginal firefighters around the state. Um, Have you seen sort of, is there an increase in the number of um, uh, cadets that are um, wanting to become a firefighter? There is. There's a massive, massive increase. I think from the fire and rescue uh, IFES program, there's been over 55 firefighters that have come through that program and have progressed on to full-time positions with fire and rescue. Our quota in fire and rescue at the moment is over 3% of the workforce. So we're actually getting good numbers within fire and rescue and... You know, it's continually going up with this, you know, wonderful program. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That's that's it a is. lot of personnel. It is, and it's just not it's just not uh, blokes that are actually going through as well. A lot of the a lot of the female firefighters as well, uh, the girls that are coming through, you know, within this program, within fire with IFES, uh, the crew girls that are coming through, they're reaching different heights in that as well. So it's not just the blokes that are progressing on. A lot of the girls too, and they're breaking down a lot of barriers as well. Yeah, that is, that is awesome to hear. And, and I mean, hopefully one day see a whole uh, um, what do you call, a firehouse being Aboriginal. Oh, hopefully that'd be you know a long way down the track, and that'd be probably one of the goals. Yeah, I think you know, if, and Redfern will be probably one of the really good places to have it. Um, it's a massive Aboriginal community, and you can work towards that. You know, a, a, down down the track and in the future, that'd be great. So how, how far do you see yourself going um, in the fire uh, and rescue? I'd like to move up. I, I'm a qualified firefighter at the moment. After this, you go to a senior firefighter and then an, an, a leading firefighter and a station officer where you manage your own crew. You know, that would be the goal in the next, you know, 10 years and then hopefully move on to an inspector and a superintendent. After that, it's just about working your way up and doing what you need to do to become one of those firefighters and inspectors and superintendents down the track. There's a few at the moment that are uh, station officers and I think there's inspectors and that as well. So, you know, they're breaking down a lot of barriers as well and pushing fire and rescue forward within the Indigenous recruitment stage as well. So if I can be one more along the list, that'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. And Lance, just uh, one final thing. Um, What do you have to say to all those other um, young listeners out there that may be listening in and thinking, you know, I could uh, give that a go or uh, anything like that? What, What kind of advice would you give them? I tell them, have a go, have a crack. You know, if this is something that you want to do, put your mind to it and you can achieve it. It's the best job in the world, That's I can guarantee you that. Not a lot of people can say they wake up and love going to work. If you ask any firefighter and even any of the um, Aboriginal firefighters, they'll tell you they wake up and love coming to this job. If this is the role that you want to do, put your head down, finish school, come down and do some um, IFES programs. Love to have you. 
Lance, Ty, thanks very much for uh, having a chat with us here on Karma Radio. No worries, thank you very much. Yes, that was Karma's Damien Williams speaking with uh, New South Wales Fire and Rescue firefighter Lance Ty. Well, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this Tuesday morning. Thank you so much for tuning into the program today. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to any of the interviews, I'll be posting up a podcast of Strong Voices up on uh, Karma's SoundCloud, so you can head to uh, your internet, whatever search engine you use, and just type in Karma SoundCloud for Karma Radio, and you'll be able to find it up there later this afternoon. Well, that's it for me. Uh, stay safe, enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong voices.